You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Happy Earth Day. Welcome to Toronto Center's executive panel on cyber resilience uh, in the financial sector. I am Bob Akepasade, CEO of Toronto Center, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where we are holding this event during the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings. I'm pleased to see that 700 people from 110 countries have registered for this event today, and we look forward to uh, bring you additional programming in the future. Before we start, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the devastating war in Ukraine. The world is awed by the resilience and heroism of the Ukrainian people. Toronto Center has an ongoing training program with the National Bank of Ukraine. Please visit the website of the National Bank to learn from the governor how you can help Ukrainian armed resistance. Also, please stay tuned for an announcement about an upcoming Toronto Center Executive Panel on War, Sustainable Development Goals Under Fire, which will explore how can we mitigate the fallout on sustainability. This will happen sometime in mid-May, mid-May or so, but no exact date has been set yet. Since our establishment in 1998, Toronto Center has trained more than 16,000 supervisors from 190 jurisdictions to become change agents for building more stable, and inclusive financial systems. Cyber threats are a growing concern and fundamental risk to financial system and the broader economy. The changing nature of cyber risk is driven by evolving technology, which can lead to increased vulnerabilities for financial institutions and their clients. Since the start of the pandemic, we have also seen cyber risks heighten as remote working and increased use of financial services over digital channels have opened more points of banking system access to malicious actors. These increasingly sophisticated attackers target large and small institutions, rich and poor countries, and operate without borders. If we want to harness the power of technology to lift people up, we need to effectively handle the technology threats that can harm livelihoods. This is essential for financial inclusion, an area where digital transformation creates many opportunities and is also crucial for empowering women. Therefore, managing cyber threats to financial stability is a priority for financial authorities and governments. Today, our guest speakers will discuss how financial institutions can improve their cyber resilience. They will also discuss the role policymakers supervisors and regulators can play. Now it is my honor to welcome our distinguished speakers. Rob Stewart is Deputy Minister of Public Safety for Government of Canada, and he will deliver a brief keynote. Danny Brando is Vice President Cybersecurity Policy to Supervision Group at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Socorro Heisen, who's a member of the Board of Directors of Toronto Center, 
is also on her spare time, is superintendent of banks, insurance, and pension fund administrators of Peru. Martin Meloni is the secretary general of the International Organization of Securities Commissions, IOSCO. Anna Poglusi is director of biotechnology programs, senior fellow, Center for Security and Emerging Technology, CSET, Georgetown University. You have seen their bios, and in the interest of time, I won't read them. Please join me in welcoming them. Welcome, everyone. Our mission is sponsored by our key funders, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the IMF, Jersey Overseas Aid, and the UNCDF. Now, it is my honor to hand over the virtual platform to Rob Stewart, Canada's Deputy Minister of Public Safety, who brings a wealth of diverse perspective to this ongoing challenge. Prior to his current role, Rob was the Associate Deputy Minister of Finance was, and was also Canada's Finance Deputy for G7, G20, and the Financial Stability Board. It is truly an honor to have Rob with us today. And without further ado, Rob, if I may ask you, we really are eager to hear um, your message. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Babak. A little bit of overstatement there, but... Uh... Happy to be here with you today on, on fairly short notice, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me just make a few remarks to frame the discussion. Um, obviously, this is a subject which is of interest uh, to all public authorities um, and various in their various forms. Um, you know, from my point of view, cybersecurity, cybersecurity risk is the real pandemic of modern times. It's, it's, it's ever-present. It's increasing like a virus, and we cannot inoculate ourselves against it. The fact is increasing connectivity results in greater security risks, and hacks are becoming more frequent from a greater variety of actors. Let me share with you some statistics. The cost of cybercrime globally in 2021 was six trillion US dollars, more than the total global trade of illegal drugs. Cybercrime is projected to grow by 15% to re reach 10.5 trillion US by 2025. During the pandemic, cybercrime increased by 600% globally, with the financial sector suffering the largest losses. And the total cost of all cybercrime damages in 2021 is expected to amount to $6 trillion worldwide. So this, but this is not just about crime and the scourge of things like ransomware. We also need to contend with the activities of hostile state actors. And the most sophisticated and high-risk threats are from state-sponsored programs of China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And these risks have come even more to the fore lately. I note that the Five Eyes security authorities, including CISA, FBI, the NSA in the United States, and the Australian, New Zealand, UK, and Canadian cybersecurity authorities have just published a report on the malicious cyber operations being prepared by various Russian state bodies and Russian-aligned cybercrime groups. These risks are real. Canada's Canadian communication security establishment is our security authority, cybersecurity authority, and it faces thousands of attacks every day on government networks. And this is true of any major financial institution you care to name. We all know that this is an ever-present and real risk. And it's because financial institutions are vertically connected 
to suppliers and to uh, their, their, their clients and horizontally connected amongst themselves. So there is huge interconnectivity in the financial sector and it's the reach of the financial sector into society is so deep and pervasive. So adapting systems and dealing with these risks requires holistic collaboration between public and private actors and international collaboration on like-minded states. We need to tackle all these issues, including evolving threats, interconnectedness, and the robustness of the smallest players in the system and their resilience. We need to work across borders with international institutions like the G20, the FSB, and the Toronto Centre. The FSB's chair's letter this week to G20 ministers and governors notes that the FSB is continuing its work on promoting greater convergence in cyber incident reporting, which is a major issue, and will deliver a consultative report in October. Here in Canada, we are very focused on cybersecurity across a great number of actors in the government space. While the Canadian uh, Communication Security Establishment is the lead, there are many other uh, organizations that are involved. And we have put in place a national cyber strategy, launched a Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity to be the interface between the, uh, the public sector and to provide technical support for Canadian institutions and, and individuals. We've announced significant investments over the last three years in the capabilities of our cyber authority and our ability to do outreach and protect and defend government systems. We are continuously engaging with our domestic and international partners, associations, academic, academia and industry. So as I say, there are many challenges. Reporting is the first among them. And as you may know, um, the United States has passed a law recently involving reporting and those are, that's something we're considering in Canada as well. Um, awareness is of the first or order in terms of protecting ourselves from threats. And at the same time, we are publishing and pro-sharing proactively threats as we perceive them, typologies and various other forms of information that can be declassified and shared. Overall, our national objectives, as I believe are, are, are those of other countries, are to reduce cyber threats and including the hostile and destructive activities of states and criminals, to raise the bar and address vulnerabilities in the government of Canada's systems and our critical infrastructure, to build our capacity to investigate, respond to, and, re and recover from incidents, and to develop, and this is the leading edge, adaptation strategies for new technologies. This is not an area in which we can stand still. This is an area in which we are all involved. It's a team game, and we must play it together. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rob. I heard almost all everything you said, and your comments were very uh, cogent and to the point, very short. Our apologies to invite you rather late, but we're really grateful that you did accept it because we didn't know if we were going to have a panel. And I think we should all sleep better knowing that you're at the helm. And thanks again. And I know you're very busy. If you like to stay, please do. And uh, Otherwise, uh, you know, thanks again for your time. And uh, you set a really good context for the conversation. So very grateful. Take care. Bye. All right. So let's start the discussion um, without further delay. So the very first question is going to go to Danny. Uh, you are leading uh, cybersecurity supervision within the, within the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. 
we are seeing more examples of crippling cybercrime across the financial sector. How big a threat is cybercrime to financial stability? And what are the substantive operational risks that keep you up at night? Thank you. Thank you, Babak, and thank you for having me today. Um, and first, I have to say that the views I express here today are my own and don't necessarily represent those of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or the Federal Reserve System. But with that said, I absolutely believe that cybersecurity risk is a threat to financial stability. Uh, just recently, the Federal Reserve Board had published uh, in November of 2021 our financial stability report that included a view on how we can consider cybersecurity risk in the context of our traditional financial stability monitoring framework. Um, and in that, you know, uh, Rob mentioned the just countless and endless number of attacks our supervised institutions and organizations all over the world are experiencing every day. Those cyber attacks are the cyber are the shocks to, um, uh, to the system, but those shocks alone don't necessarily cause any kind of financial stability implications, right? They first have to um, exploit a firm level weakness. And a firm level weakness can be anything from a, an employee clicking on a phishing email and that potentially wreaking havoc uh, with ransomware throughout an organization or a vulnerability in a public facing application. Right? Those are firm level weaknesses. And again, that doesn't necessarily cause financial stability implications alone. It would then have to exploit a system level weakness. And Rob also mentioned the interconnectedness and dependencies that we have in the financial system today. Um, if it were to exploit those kinds of weaknesses or uh, the dependencies we have on data, uh, lack of substitutability on critical functions, um, financial relationships and that trust relationship there, those are the types of system level vulnerabilities that if a shock were to exploit the firm level and system level vulnerability could have financial stability implications. So what keeps me up at night, Babak, is really two things. First, um, supply chain attacks. Supply chains are vast and complex and extremely difficult for organizations to identify, let alone uh, protect and detect against risks to them. The very recent public example of solar winds, I think tells this story very well. We have a very, uh, a relatively small company who provides software for uh, network monitoring and management that was targeted by cyber threat actors and um, code was embedded in their updates that would open up a backdoor to the organization, right? Um, customers did what security professionals like myself tell them to do, update your software, patch your systems. And unfortunately that's what got them compromised. The second thing that, that uh, worries me and keeps me up at night are data destruction events. Um, on the contrary, these are very easy to detect because they're loud and disruptive, but um, they're much harder to respond and recover from. And if we put these two things together, where we have a supply chain attack with intentional data destruction, uh, we could see a financial stability impacting event. This type of event can encrypt uh, or destroy data for transaction accounts, uh, deposits, collateral management, custody systems. We could see payment system processing disrupted, trading systems halted, or even just uh, customers unable to access their accounts and perform basic transactions. Um, all of this can have considerable downstream impact to other firms and other sectors even. So I think that's enough to keep me up at night. <laughs> that is plenty. Well, thank you. 
And also your comment is very relevant to us because there's always a debate about what exactly is a threat to financial stability. And some hardcore supervisors always try to link it to credit risk, but that's like trying to fight a war that happened already. And what you're talking about is uh, very similar to what Rob said, which is like, this is pretty much our new pandemic and there's no vaccination, right? So thank you for making that point very clearly. I'd like to move on to Socorro. Socorro, you, you bring many perspectives having worked at IMF and Peru and you know, emerging markets. Uh, so really interested in your views on the fact that the pandemic expedited the adoption of digitization, which resulted in many benefits, including being able to empower women who were previously unbanked. And we know about a billion women around the world are not part of the financial system. But this has also heightened cyber risk concerns in the financial sector. As a leading supervisor in Latin America, what do you believe are the cyber risk challenges for emerging markets, especially in relation to financial inclusion? And what is being done to improve cyber resilience? Thank you. And thank you, Babak. Uh, thank you for the invitation and thank you for the question. Uh, indeed, the, the pandemic has accelerated two processes that were previously underway, the digital transformation of the financial industry and its service providers, and also the digital inclusion of millions of people who were previously unbanked. Uh, all these transformations uh, and digital inclusion are creating added risk for the financial industry as well as for customers. Um, of course, as uh, Rob uh, Stewart pointed out, and Rob and Danny actually, um, cyber risk is a global risk. So we face, in, in emerging markets, we face the, the same risks and the same challenges that, are, that have been pointed out by the two previous speakers. Uh, cyber threats and incidents like ransomware attacks, hacking incidents, stolen data, uh, destroyed data. Uh, there are all sources of concerns for, for us, uh, for financial industry and financial stability. Um, it is more points of access to banks uh, only enhance the, the vulnerability to, this, to these risks. And fast innovation that is being taken place during the pandemic also creates added risk because during periods of fast innovation, what you have is that uh, not all the areas of, the, uh, of, a, of a bank move at the same speed. And that is, uh, uh, creates some, probably creates gaps in controls and in, 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 in security that are making a bank more vulnerable to an attack. Uh, so uh, these are common to all of us, I think. This is not, not special about uh, developed or emerging markets or developing nations. We all face uh, the same risks. Um, but perhaps in addition to, to what has been mentioned, uh, in, in emerging countries uh, with re recently included and banned people, we face more of, of the type of risks that consumers are facing or digital fraud associated to consumers. Uh, like withdrawals or unrecognized credit cards or loans that uh, basically create a problem for, for the consumers and that in many cases the, the banks end up covering 
and the risk is being transferred to an insurance uh, company and creating higher premiums because of these heightened uh, risks. Um, so the, the, the consumer element perhaps is, is, is uh, something that, that should be uh, uh, taken into, into account and we need to pay a lot of attention to that because consumers are vulnerable to aggressive selling, to fraud, to phishing, to uh, all sorts of uh, different cyber types of crimes. And uh, young people, new digital consumers are especially vulnerable to this because they tend to be very familiar with digital applications and they feel that confident in using uh, financial uh, uh, services in their applications, in their phones, but sometimes they are not as careful as they should be with uh, the, the, the risks that accompany the use of financial uh, services on uh, mobile applications. So the, what, what do we need to do? Oh, well, well, as a few examples, I can give you a few examples about uh, uh, a survey that we did in Peru um, and, and, and some of the uh, concerns that people have. 70% uh, of uh, bank users in Peru were extremely worried about fraud you know, to, their, to their own accounts. Uh, and this is a concern for us because it also threatens the reputation of the, of the uh, banking industry. And it also could create some uh, slowing down for inclusion because if people are not comfortable and they're not confident, they don't trust the financial system because they are, they are afraid of fraud, well, they will not get included. 25% uh, of bank users lost their credit card in the survey period. 69% of users did not update their antivirus software. 78% of users did not change their email passwords. And only 35% of bank users uh, check, regularly check their activities on uh, online accounts. So this uh, environment creates uh, uh, special vulnerabilities for consumers. So what do we need? First, we need to ensure that financial institutions have an adequate framework to address uh, properly uh, cyber risk uh, and, and to have a, a, an adequate management of cyber risks. And, and for this, uh, we, we need uh, adequate regulation, adequate supervision, supervisory capabilities. But as was pointed out pre previously, we need also sharing information, cooperation, uh, not only locally, um, among financial institutions, with supervisors, with other government authorities, with other types of industries, and internationally. Um, and, and also, what, what else do we need? We need uh, to, to be, make people aware that cyber risk is not only a financial industry problem, it is also a consumer problem. And, and therefore we need to work on awareness and public awareness of this risk and on literacy, financial, digital financial literacy. Uh, we need to, to work on, in education and we have been working very hard on that um, in, in, in different uh, types of uh, channels of, of, of uh, of education that we have, uh, Facebook, uh, uh, 
uh, YouTube, um, our own web page, and also uh, going locally to different places and having classes uh, to, for students, for teachers, for, for older people, for young people, for different, for, for different sectors. And, and, and working very hard with the Ministry of Education to try to create uh, an educational framework that includes this as, as, as part of um, the children education to, to work on this in the future. So I mean, let, me, let me leave it at that. Uh, and I think uh, financial literacy is a huge, huge issue moving forward because we are not gonna solve this only by the industry and the government and the private sector uh, working on this. We need the, the citizens' uh, collaboration. Thank you, Sokora. I guess what I take away from your comments is that, you know, it's it's one thing to try to defend ourselves about against cyber threats. Another thing is to take the war to the hackers, right? That's just in a simple way of what you just said, in a sense that you need the literacy of all kinds, but also vigilance. And let's do that international coordination. And it's also very useful to know that uh, cyber like pandemic does not discriminate between advanced and emerging economies, right? So it's a, we're all in the same boat on that. Thank you very much for that. And just to, a reminder to our audience, uh, we do have um, Spanish and French translations available. You can access them uh, at the bottom of your screen. And at the end of the first round, after I ask my question to Anna, uh, we will open up for a round of uh, questions. Then we go to the second round. So please put in your questions early. I already see at least uh, one question that is posted so that we get a chance to read your questions. Um, Martin, I'm very excited to ask this question of you because you are really an international uh, you know, standard setter representative and one of the senior ones, and you have your pulse, uh, your finger on the pulse of the financial sector. Over the past five years, national authorities and standard setting bodies and private sector organizations have launched initiatives to address cyber risk and increase cyber resilience on financial markets and the industry. So essentially what uh, Socorro was talking about, you guys have been involved uh, at the pretty much the forefront in that. Can you please briefly talk about IOSCO's efforts and steps taken related to improving cybersecurity. Thank you. Sure, sure, Babak. And, and, and I think actually your way of asking the question is really good because we can learn a lot by looking at the, the history of how this has uh, developed. Because there may be many people in your audience who are feeling a little bit behind the curve that they're not really up to, up to scratch with latest developments. But I think we've all spent the whole of the last 10 years actually constantly trying to keep up with, with developments in this area. It's hugely challenging. And if you look back, I think it was really only after about 2010 that many of us sort of became aware of the scale of this uh, and importance of this issue. So the first thing IOSCO ever did in this area was in 2013 when we did a report with the World Federation of Exchanges because the natural thought at that point was exchanges are the weak point. We've got to help the exchanges and we've got to look at the issues there. And you'll see there some of the points that have continued to be major themes. So we really emphasized the centrality of information sharing and we emphasized the changing sophistication of the attacks. And that was a point we were emphasizing back even then. After that, what we did was also quite interesting. In 2016, we actually produced a framework 
for uh, management of, of cyber risk by uh, financial market infrastructures, that's by payment systems and, and uh, uh, CCPs and so on. And that covered everything you'd expect to see, sort of governance, risk identification, sort of protection measures, how you uh, detect attacks, but it also critically set targets for financial market infrastructures, saying they should be aiming to resume in two hours. That's a really tough target for anybody to meet. And it's become more difficult as, as, uh, as attacks have become more sophisticated and changed their character. Of course, it also emphasized testing and situational awareness and learning and development. All those things that have continued to be important and that you see in many of the other frameworks that have been produced uh, uh, since as well. Having dealt with the infrastructure, we then broadened our view. In, and you, you spoke over the last five years, and this is really the point at which, at which this comes in. We said, okay, so we've dealt with the core infrastructure, but now we have to deal with everything else because this is not just a core infrastructure issue. So we did a report in 2018, which looked across the whole of the, of the, of the uh, financial sector that we produce standards for and looked at it on a sectoral basis, but also came out and admitted that regulators were having challenges in this area. It was not easy for regulators to develop policies to deal with this. And we, we described the wide variety of different approaches you see in different countries, where in some countries you're seeing uh, specific rules uh, being developed. In other countries, there's an emphasis on uh, uh, raising awareness, which, which should never be underestimated. And in some cases, you're seeing actually regulators coordinating uh, 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 drills and so on to test for this. So there were a lot of good practices emerging at that time, and a lot of those good practices have continued uh, uh, since. But there's also a lot of fragmentation in approach. So in 2019, we produced a report, the Cyber Task Force Report, which tried to argue, and which did argue, I think successfully, that look, there were three core standards emerging, and it asked everybody to look at one of those three core standards as the ones they would apply, either our own uh, framework, our own standard that I've just talked about in relation to FMIs, look at the ISO 27000, or look at the National Institute of Technology framework. And we've pushed since to everyone to try to conform to one of those three standards to, to reduce the amount of fragmentation in the way these things are approached. And then the wake of March, April 2020, we then looked at what were the implications for operational resilience uh, and particular in relation to cyber. In January 2022, when we produced our report on operational resilience lessons from that period, we emphasized the issue of governance and making decisions under conditions of uncertainty. You don't know exactly what's going on, but you have to make a decision now in order to protect your, your data and how critical it is of the proper governance frameworks in place to achieve that. So if you look at that history, it's a history of sort of trying to get good practices developed and then trying to zone in on the key issues where you're seeing continuing weaknesses. And we continue now to look at that. We're looking back again at our 2016 standards now because you're now facing multi-vector attacks, increasingly complicated attacks. And we have to make sure those standards are still working well for the financial markets infrastructure that are so important for us. Martin, this strikes me as I'm listening to you that you know it's a bit of a full core press and it's very much similar uh, to trench warfare, right? Using a war analogy, because you can do all kinds of planning, but what good is that when technology is changing so fast, attacks are getting so sophisticated. So thank you for that. And also just a, a little plug for Toronto Center. We actually have 
simulate crisis simulations that are focused on cyber uh, threats, right? So it's a very interesting area that's evolving and we constantly learn ourselves through these simulations and exercises as well. So every time you go into a battle, you learn something more. So thank you for that. Now let's come to Anna. Anna, you are the non-financial authority in this group and we're not gonna hold it against you. You know, the doors are, you know, we're open, we're friendly people. But we're very interested to hear from you. At Georgetown University, you are dealing with the latest developments in national security and emerging technology. As an academic and also a practitioner out there in uh, various counterintelligence, you can look both at the longer term horizon and a historical perspective. You've been listening to the perspectives of uh, leading financial authorities today. How are their concerns and approaches related to your cybersecurity work at Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology? Thank you. No, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I always laugh like being an academic, it's a blessing and a curse um, as we're uh, you know, looking at being able to, to pontificate a little bit, but um, all kidding aside, you know, I, I think everyone is really laid out, just um, highlights the growing threat, but even really more importantly, the need to really bake in solutions and thinking about solutions from the very beginning um, and that it really touches us all. So I know we're very focused on financial today, but, you know, it really comes across all of the different areas, whether that be infrastructure, um, you know, academia. I mean, we see that, especially from the intellectual property right um, perspective. Um, and it's a really, really different way of thinking about things. And I think that that's what makes it so challenging. Um, and I think in some ways too, we haven't mentioned this yet, but we really kind of also need um, to think about whether you know we're dealing with financially motivated bad guys or girls um, or nation states, because that really makes a difference as well. Um, and what are the motiva motivations and the drivers of some of these um, activities? You know, whether is it to gain information, is it disruption, to, to undermine institutions, um, or is it financial? You know, in some, some cases, those, those uh, actors, it'll, it'll be all of them, um, but it's really important because, you know, how we, we message and how we, we talk about that, especially with the different constituencies, um, is really important. Um, a lot of what we do, too, is also thinking about, you know, it's pretty grim right now. But looking forward, what um, what will technology developments, um, especially AI, have on um, actors' ability to to um, to use these tools? Um, and that gets at really, especially as more things are linked, um, the tools are getting better. Um, and in some cases, and and I think a number all the speakers mentioned this is is that awareness piece, right? Um, and really highlighting that. Um, this is an issue for everyone and not just the CTO or, you know, the security folks or, um, you know, that basically kind of get brought out for a board meeting and then sent back, you know, into their, their uh, office down the hall. Um, but, you know, as open level democracies, we really have to find principled solutions because um, we don't want to break the system, right? The system has worked really well, so we have to find ways of dealing with that. Um, and it kind of highlights that academia and commerce is really the new geopolitical battle space. And we're just, again, not really used to thinking that way. And we have to have a holistic approach in bringing together public, private, um, government, um, especially you know, as data becomes more important to different functions of government, of academia, of our, um, the private sector. 
Um, I love the analogy of vaccines, of course, having a bio background, but, but I think it really kind of hits that. It's, it's that prevention piece, right? And getting out ahead of the threat and uh, dealing with education. So thanks. Well, thank you. That was a, that was a good way of uh, wrapping the first round. And a couple of things that I'm taking from you, which actually you're connecting, is the state actors versus the, the loan actors, right? I remember there was a famous former US president that thought some of the hacking was done by a 400 pound person on a bed. When in fact, we found out it was like an army of expert <laughs> Russians and doing that, right? So, and also the young people, and uh, I have, uh, I'm a father of a couple of them. I mean, they're essentially cyborgs, right? I mean, for them, <laughs> technology is really an organ of their body as opposed to us trying to figure out how to do something. So level of sophistication is just going to increase. So let's go to some of the questions that we received. Thank you for your questions. We'll try to answer these questions in CNN style, right? So I ask a question, I point it to someone, and please uh, break it down for us in 20 seconds. So the first one is from the Courageous Anonymous. How do you strike the proper balance between innovation and risk? Digital presents a huge opportunity to reach the unbanked, but at the same time, there has to be education and training to increase financial literacy. Who should address this training? So Socorro, I'm gonna pass it on to you and you literally have about 20, 30 seconds to answer. Thank you. Well, uh, it is an impossible task really. Uh... <laughs> Because uh, not only the 20 seconds, but answering the question. <laughs> uh, well, basically, uh, what, what do you have to do as, as, uh, as a regulator or, or, or as, as a firm that wants to do innovation is, 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 is to, to try to keep, a, keep the, all the areas of the organization going at the same speed. No, and, and, and the regulator will need to not be too intrusive to, to hamper in innovation, but it will have to uh, ensure that the banks are prudent when they are developing new products or, or, or new applications or, or, or accessing unknown areas of business. Uh, it, is, it is impossible to know what the proper balance is, but you just have to keep doing it and keep on trying. Yeah, so Socorro, if concision was an Olympic uh, sport, you'd get the gold, uh, silver, and bronze medals. Thank you. That was actually really good. And uh, you know, it's very interesting. When you, what you're talking about is you know, using a tri, uh, entire term is maybe cyber mindfulness, right? The idea is that just be aware that this threat is there and do what you can to orient your work towards that defense and trying to combat it and incorporate it across the across the various issues you're working on. Thank you very much for that. I have a question from uh, Colleen. Uh, she was brave enough to put her name, full name. Could the speakers uh, please discuss the best way to engage and educate consumers and who should take the lead on this? So um, Danny, I'm wondering if you could just, uh, this may or may not be the purview of exactly what you do, but I'm sure you've reflected on this. Would you mind tackling this? Thank you. I'll do my best in a few seconds. Um, I, 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 similar to what um, Socorro and Babak said, right? This is incumbent upon everyone. There's no single authority that's going to educate all consumers on cyber risk. I think as financial service providers are introducing new services and capabilities for consumers, it's incumbent upon them to make sure that they're also educating their consumers on the risks of using such 
um, such services. So I think it is for everyone, but individually, as we provide services, we are uh, we need to provide education as a part of that service offering. Good, thank you. And Anna, I'm going to go with you on the next question. Uh, it's a fairly uh, broad, big question. Uh, at the first glance, the answer is obvious, but you know, I think we need to reflect on it because it's important. Have recent world events, um, I guess it's Ukraine, uh, increased uh, concern with cyber threats? Because I mean, the reason I'm saying it's an interesting question to look at is one of the major arsenals we're all afraid of about Russia and China was the cyber attack. And that has not seemed to have happened, thank God. But, uh, but has, are we all on edge right now because of this stuff? I think it kind of, it's the, the, the issue we're talking about is um, like bringing it to the fore and awareness, right? And really kind of thinking through, I mean, there's been a lot of, um, you know, discussions about what would be the implications of that, right? And that is really far reaching. So whether that's infrastructure, um, whether that is the financial institutions, um, whether that is outside of areas of conflict, but I think it really kind of, in some ways redefines, okay, what, what is warfare and, and what different aspects, you know, that will become challenges in the future especially when you have incredibly robust state programs. Great, thank you. Martin, next question I'm gonna pass on to you is from our good friend and former board member, Andrea Corcoran. I had the pleasure of uh, seeing her at a Toronto Center dinner just a couple of nights ago. Uh, Andrea's asking, there has been increasing interest in mapping, this, uh, mapping risks in financial intermediaries, including among systems where multiple systems interface and some are legacy systems. Is this part of, <clears throat> preparedness uh, in your work. Thank you. Yeah, I, the answer, I think, is it absolutely has to be because a lot of, uh, Danny probably knows uh, uh, more, more about this than I do, but I, I would say the, the way in which we're in the financial sector that uh, uh, IT systems developed uh, develop and uh, particularly the use of uh, robotics to connect uh, uh, systems of different ages uh, and uh, therefore the existence of legacy systems which are often not well understood by some of the people uh, active in the in the uh, IT departments uh, in, in, in large organizations um, mean that you can actually have risks that you don't fully or easily understand within the organization, even though you think you understand your own systems. Therefore, you need deliberate processes to map those risks and understand the flows of information and the possible access points, which can be highly complex in, in a modern financial organization uh, in, in order to be able to get a grasp on what the risks could be. And I would link that very closely to the question of who is setting the risk appetite within the organization? Because if they can't understand the complexity of the systems you've got, then their setting of the risk appetite will be, will be a notional exercise. And, and that's part of the difficulty, I think, for regulators in interacting with organizations, because of the difference you come at this as a regulator, it's very difficult to understand the complexities of these historically evolved multi-layered systems. Thank you. So in a sense, you were talking about risk-based approach, risk-based supervision, trying to understand how the risk interact and don't spend all your time trying to assess every single risk, but try to do a bit of a triage of what's most important and go through there. Thank you for that. So just a point of order, uh, as you can see, there's a lot of enthusiasm here on the boards, on the questions. Some people are putting questions in Q&A, some in chats pretty soon. I think someone's gonna bring a question to me through a pigeon. If everybody who has their questions in chat, put them in the Q&A, 
and my team keep them, I'll come back to them again. So thank you. The most important thing is uh, thank you for your enthusiasm. It's a great problem to have for us. Keep the questions coming. So let's go with the um, next uh, uh, set of questions here. And Socorro, uh, I think I'm wondering if I can just go to you right now and uh, say that as the senior superintendent in Peru, what type of information do you require to improve your macro surveillance of cybersecurity on financial institutions to ensure early detection and resolution of infractions and infringements? Thank you. Uh, thanks for the, for the question. First, first of all, let me say that um, we have done uh, more progress on micro surveillance than on macro surveillance as a country. We do have a huge challenge ahead of us on issues re regarding macro surveillance uh, because most of the, the progress that we've made uh, so far uh, regards microprudential uh, uh, supervision of, of these risks, uh, oh, oh, cyber risks. Uh, our supervisions includes, of course, the assessment of the organization, policies, allocation of resources and practices, and, and also uh, an assessment of the bank's internal tools for the prevention and detection and the response for cyber risks and their internal systems for the timely reporting of cyber security incidents. And there are also the reports of cyber inc incidents uh, to supervisors and to other specialized centers for the detection and response of these incidents. So uh, in general, most of what we have done is, is regarding micro uh, surveillance. Uh, we have periodic uh, regular two types of reports that we get. Uh, first, the periodic regular reporting that includes uh, reports on the important changes uh, that, uh, on the business, on operations, and on technology environment of each bank. Then we have reports of interruptions of operation, reports of cyber incidents. And also we have a different type of reports, which is uh, sort of almost real-time uh, information, um, special reports of significant cyber, cyber uh, events of fraud, uh, things that can affect the reputation of the institution, theft or damage, uh, data or service disruption. Um, so these this special reports are key, they are important, they, they, they come early, uh, but usually they are not uh, very accurate, they are not very comprehensive, they cannot be comprehensive because the focus of the attention of the company while dealing with a threat or with, a, with an incident is resolving the incident, not be informing the supervisor. So in this context, uh, the, the first reports on, a, on an actual incident are, can be imprecise and they tend to be light because we want this, the, the industry to resolve, the, the company to resolve the problem. Um, in addition to these reports that we get, the periodical and the special reports, we get, uh, access to platforms, that's, that's a very important source of information, uh, platforms, international platform, platforms of cyber risks, uh, threats, and incidents uh, across different countries in the world. That's, that's, a, that's an important tool also for understanding what are the vulnerabilities. Um, and um, basically we use this uh, to, to assess what the situation is. Um, 
one important piece of, 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 of information or is, is that for, for any quality response, you need institutions to interact with each other. You need uh, to, to, to talk to other market participants, to share information. And for that, we need good coordination and we need to build trust. Uh, and, and it's very easy to say, but it's difficult to achieve that to get financial institutions to actually share information in a timely manner to prevent the, the expansion of, a, of an incident. Because basically, if we share information at the right time, we may prevent the, 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 the risk from getting bigger and the impact of the, of the threat to getting bigger. So uh, I think uh, those are the key things. Uh, we need better, more standardized information uh, to be shared among uh, different supervisors, different uh, government authorities, but also different uh, financial institutions to, to, to solve these problems. And, and, and it's, uh, it's a continuing uh, task. We, we are, we're, we're, we're always going to be keeping running to, to catch up, basically, you know, running to understand the new threats, the new problems. Uh, and uh, one of the things that you mentioned before, and I think that are very useful to build the trust that we need and the, the capabilities for information sharing is uh, building crisis simulation exercises. The crisis simulation exercises are not only to understand what our risks are, but also to know each other and to, to appoint specific uh, counterparties, uh, to know your counterparties, to, to, to have task uh, forces in each, crisis task forces in each of the institutions that are essential to, to resolving this, this crisis so that they can know each other and, and talk to each other and know, uh, have the contact information in the, in the right time to be able to, to uh, basically address this incident in the right moment. Because basically uh, for a significant event, for a, for a systemic type event, basically uh, quick information sharing and quick response is main, is, is key. So basically that's, that's what I want to oh, that's say. That's great. Well, Socorro, thank you so much. I mean, it's uh, the world crisis is very important and, and to Toronto Centre, we were born out of the Asian financial crisis in 1998. And I think we've done something like 130 crisis simulations, Some, many of them bespoke uh, since the global financial crisis. Some of your very senior uh, officials have been trained by Toronto Centre as well. So this is top of mind for us. Uh, I went a little bit out of sequence. So I'm going to come back to Danny. You thought you were up the hook, but no, your question is here. So Danny, Collaboration on cybersecurity, our invisible enemy, is always a challenge. How can supervisors do a better job globally? And what are the success factors to make us more resilience, resilient as the pace of digitization increases? It's interesting. This question keeps coming back over and over because, you know, sometimes the answer needs to be told more than once. Please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an important question. Um, and so with collaboration and information sharing, um, the good news is I see progress happening year over year, um, progress between firms sharing information about threats and incidents that occur, uh, between firms and regulators, government agencies, intelligence agencies, international partners. Um, 
you know, it, it's growing more and more year over year, and that's and that's uh, on the positive side. These kinds of sharing of best practices, unique approaches, insights, and ideas in in fora like these are are just going to make us better and better. And I want to thank the Toronto Center for investing the time and energy on an important topic like this. Because um, cyber cybersecurity information sharing is something that I'm uh, extremely passionate about. I believe it's critical in the collective defense uh, against this threat. But it does take a lot of time and energy in order to break down the natural barriers that come up with information sharing in, within a, an organization, let alone you know, across borders and jurisdictions, right? But I believe that effort is well worth it. Uh, we can benefit from more well-designed um, scenarios and exercises to stress our ability to collectively respond and recover. And I promise you when the event occurs, a financial stability, large scale cyber impacting event uh, occurs, we're gonna wish we did more exercises to practice and have that muscle memory. So the more we do and the more difficult we design these exercises, I think the better off we're going to be. Um, and that leads me to every organization needing a playbook and not just the technical one. I think Anna said this, right? This is cybersecurity is not a technology problem alone. This is this is a, uh, a problem that crosses technology and business. And so the playbooks I believe need to be written not only from with a technology pen, but also with a business pen. Uh, business strategy and, and cybersecurity and continu continuity all need to be aligned and need to be thought about from the beginning, not tacked on afterward. So partnering your cyber experts with your business experts is going to uh, forge trust relationships that are gonna pay dividends when, if and when they're responding to cyber incidents, because these types of relationships will be stressed in times of crisis. So the playbook should not all only cover attacks against your organization. I think that's the normal uh, and, and inclination of most organizations is, all right, how do we think about cyber attacks against our organization? But I'd, I'd also um, encourage people to think more broadly about how do you respond? What's your playbook for attacks that impact your counterparties or your trusted partner relationships, right? How does that change your the way that your business might operate? So as supervisors, we play a critical role in ensuring the safety and soundness of supervised institutions, monitoring trends, coordinating and assessing impact and informing uh, if there's any needed policy changes. Um, we need to continue to collaborate across industry, across government, academia on, um, improving our cyber risk data collection and modeling. Today, we have lots of data and models around credit risk and liquidity risk, not so much around cyber, right? And so this is an area that I think we need to collectively improve and mature. Um, so if we do all of this, I can't promise we're gonna all be okay, but I can promise we'll be a lot better off than if we hadn't, so back to you. That's great, thank you. No, that's actually, uh, I found your suggestions highly practical and that's very useful uh, that we will end up using them in many of our courses as well because you're always trying to find out what's the latest and the best here. Thank you. Martin, before I go to your next question, one of the, uh, one of the participants asked, where can they see the documents that you have been referencing as part of your um, opening and other comments? So you can, people can go to IOSCO's website, I suppose, but also Martin, someone on your team can send it to us and we'll try to send it to the team here as well, distribute it. So if you could be kind enough to do that, we'd be very happy. Not a problem. Uh, the, the, uh, yeah, thank you. 
So the question is, uh, at IOSCO, you monitor the consistency with the core standards as well as consistency across national cybersecurity frameworks of member jurisdictions. But also we know not uh, one size doesn't fit all. So what are the main challenges they have been facing so far and what needs to be done to address those challenges going forward? Thank you. I think um, I mentioned governance earlier. You can't get away from governance as a key issue and jurisdictions struggle with that. And I, and I think one of the reasons why uh, you get a problem around governance with this is, is that there's actually a bigger challenge for organizations around uh, proper governance of risk management in general. So that uh, so the key issue is often to get boards to make the, the risk management decisions and set the risk management appetite. But that is for reasons I, uh, you've probably gone into in many uh, seminars uh, in the Toronto Centre, and I won't go into all the detail here. That's a really tough challenge for organisations, which trickles down into cyber, just as it trickles down into many other types of risk. And the one thing I would say, I would say is there's an obligation on chairs to conduct uh, cyber risk skills assessment of their board members so as to make sure that you have the right combination of skills at board level to be able to do that. There's lots of other critical factors for being able to achieve that, but, that, but that's one. I think another thing we come across a lot uh, is... Uh, patching and the risk in a lot of large organizations of the false economy of not keeping your patching up to date. And one of the things I would recommend to, to any uh, new chief executive in an organization is ask what's the, what's the patching uh, uh, backlog in your organization and find out and do something about it. Cause that's what gets you uh, the, what are these called these zero day vulnerabilities, which are so, so tough for many organizations, a problem that could have been fixed, but wasn't. And, and as a CEO, you often don't know about that. Uh, and the other thing we definitely come across is testing is still not as good as uh, it really needs to be. Um, and, and regulators have a problem, a, a challenge, I would say, in, in setting standards for organizations in that. And some of the things that they have to challenge are why are service providers not being included in the, in the testing when we all know they're critical access points? For many, for many vulnerabilities. Uh, why hasn't uh, another test been run after you've done your remediation to check to see the, if the system works? And why haven't you gone up from just the ordinary standard test to real threat hunting, uh, which is something that you know some organizations don't do. It's possible to get very cozy with your IT provider and they tell you everything you've got is okay. And that's often not good enough uh, uh, in terms of, of uh, 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 testing. I think a lot of the points that have been made about uh, uh, learning are, are also really uh, uh, Im important and you know those are around reporting to regulators. We're still not seeing that consistently happening everywhere. Sharing of information, there are a couple of really good initiatives. I see very good ones particularly in the banking sector but we also see ones that asset managers are involved in as well for sharing information. They don't all have to go through the National uh, Cyber Center to be effectively shared. And, and there's a lot of very practice there. I do myself wonder if this whole structure of national cyber centers is, is actually the best way to do this, but, uh, uh, but that's an interesting point uh, uh, to, to discuss. And I think we're also seeing um, some uh, cutting edge uh, developments 
where some jurisdictions are actually moving into uh, effectively organizing testing uh, themselves uh, in cooperation with regulated entities. Some of those really interesting developments are showing us the next level that I think regulators are likely to go through in trying to press organizations to get better and better at this. Thank you, Martin. Um, you also get a gold medal. I mean, um, starting with governance is always a very, very important topic to talk about because, but then you did, you went further beyond that and you actually talked about very specific questions that need to be asked. Thanks again. And hope you don't mind if we just take some of your ideas in some of our courses as well, because I'm always looking for latest uh, thoughts. Um, I'm going to go to Anna and then right after that, we're going to go to questions. I'm very excited because a ton, there are a ton of questions out there and uh, I'll promise you we're going to get to as many of them as we can. And in the meantime, Gilles Ward has put a, from IOSCO, I believe, has put a number of links here. So a note to my team, please let's copy these links. And for those who wanted IOSCO information, please copy the links as well. So thank you very much for that. And let's go to Anna. Anna, you played a... Uh, your challenge is to bring this section to an end, which is so exciting so far. So you played an, a prominent role in drafting the recent US national counterintelligence strategy. Sounds exciting. And in designing mitigation uh, strategies for both the public and private sectors to promote, uh, to, uh, sorry, to protect technology. As you reflect on that strategy, what do you think countries can do to achieve a more secure and resilient digital world? Great, thank you. Um, so, you know, first off, it's it's really kind of bringing it out of the shadows, right? And having events like this, um, both at this this larger level, but also regional levels, um, and and really start talking about it because I think often, too often, um, it's it's like blame the victim, right? The victim company, the victim institution, or an individual who gets their um, information stolen. Um, and in having that that reporting, and and I I just want to comment that's that's really really important, right? To put that information back into the system so we really understand that evolving threat. Um, and you know there, it's a twofold. We we have to think the unthinkable, right? I mean, many of our institutions and our systems are built on trust, and you know we are seeing over the course of the last several decades, especially as things become more interconnected. Um, there's I mean there's benefits to that, but there's also threats. Um, and I have to say, like, after hearing some of the comments from my, my co-panelists, um, I think I have more things that are going to keep me up at night tonight. Um, uh, but, you know, the flip side of that is that, um, well, we need to think the unthinkable, we really need to do the basics, right? And I mean, we were just talking about the patching or, you know, training the workforce on, on phishing, um, things like that. Um, and again, you know, I come back to really need to stop thinking of this as a nice to have. And it really kind of gets at, you know, what is the value? Like we need to focus on the value of doing it versus the immediate cost. Because I think what really gets focused on is that immediate cost as opposed to, okay, what's the cost gonna be if my water plant goes down or, you know, people begin to lack um, uh, confidence in the uh, institutions. Um, the sharing of information is really important. Um, and I also debate whether a government is the right place to be, you know, to have that or a central location, but it really is going to be that holistic full court press, right? Because each has different information, different skill sets, and also different risk and, and threat levels. So 
you know, government, civil society, universities, um, really kind of working together. Um, and, you know, collectively, we really need to deal with those state state sponsored programs, um, because they really do undermine global norms. Um, they undermine the system that we all rely on. Um, and we need to, you know, collectively, you know, diplomatically uh, make it clear that that's just not okay. Um, because really, at the end of the day, when we think about those state programs, our companies, our people, our institutions are up against the nation state. Um, and it's not a fair fight. Um, and then finally, it, you know, a number of the panelists have, have mentioned this is it, it comes down to education. So, and, you know, how, what I click on personally, or, you know, a collectively of how, you know, we work together, but also thinking to the future and what is that technically proficient workforce um, or digital savvy um, folks going to be. Um, and so really kind of trying to think ahead um, and, and work on that um, and having those training programs. Um, and it really comes down to, I think, the education resilience um, and workforce, so. Anna, that was a really excellent way of uh, summing it all. And I will sum up your summation by saying that the work is never done, right? So we have to be vigilant, we have to be mindful, we have to be proactive. But thank you for that. You give us a lot of different talks. I'm going to go a little bit in uh, a different sequence for the questions that are there. I'm very excited because we have a ton of questions. And if you stay till the end, you'll be fully rewarded because we're going to go through as many of them as possible. So a question from Bill Cohen, a member of our board of directors, uh, which I also had the pleasure of seeing a couple of nights ago in person. And Bill and I had passed a salt shaker to each other and didn't have to say unmute when we were seeing each other in person. Bill's question is, financial institutions, mainly systemic uh, important institutions in some jurisdictions meet virtually on a daily basis to share notes on cyber attacks, defense measures, recent developments, et cetera. Should the central bank or supervisory authority be involved in this dialogue or at a minimum encourage this type of private sector engagement? Danny, um, I'm wondering if you may wanna take this one off. Thank you. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, and I could say in the US, I think this does happen uh, to a degree. So first, I absolutely think we should be encouraging and we do encourage financial institutions to share information among themselves, getting that information out there quick um, so that they can defend themselves properly against the latest threats. Absolutely something that uh, we can and do encourage. Um, but there are a lot of partnerships that we have between the federal financial and state financial regulators with industry. Uh, we meet in person um, on a regular basis. We share uh, perspectives, thoughts, threats, um, have collaborative work group um, to tackle some of the bigger issues. So that kinds of cooperation and collaboration is occurring. And uh, I would recommend all jurisdictions consider those kinds of cooperations if they're not doing it today. Thank you. And how could I resist this opening for a question from uh, Sabramindi? Good morning from Nepal. So climbing the summit, my question is, how are attacks being tracked? Kindly provide an insistence if possible. Anna, I'm wondering if you might want to take a stab at that one. Actually, that's an amazing question. Um, I think it's uh, it's not as, as comprehensive as, uh, and it should be more comprehensive, right? And I think it just really depends. Um, and it gets back to that reporting issue um, because we, you know, we know some, some organizations or institutions, you know, have issues and don't report it, some do. So um, that's something that I think we, we collectively really need to work on. 
Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, if, if I can make a follow-up from that question, in the, in the community of financial supervisors and regulators, we're all shocked by the, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about it, the attack on the Central Bank of Bangladesh where like millions of dollars were uh, stolen. Is there any kind of a registry somewhere globally, as you're aware of, that keeps track of everything and at least figures out, okay, in 2010, this happened in 2012. Is there such a thing that's centrally available for people to go and look at, maybe learn from? Or is that, is that a good idea to have something like that? <clears throat> yeah, I'm not aware of ones that cut across multiple sectors. I okay. think they're more individual. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Uh, Martin, Allison is looking for uh, investment advice. So she's asking, what do you think about cryptocurrency in this context? You know, the interesting thing about cryptocurrency here is, uh, in a sense, uh, it doesn't make any difference because uh, the, the, the plumbing is the same, whatever's going through it. And the, the potential to attack the plumbing is the same, irrespective of what's, what's going, going through it. Um, it, it, in another sense, however, uh, uh, we have been very concerned about the uh, potential linked to the growth of interest in cryptocurrencies, obviously for payment systems, stablecoin systems, which have uh, a potential financial stability implications to grow to a point where they would actually have financial stability implications. And in that context, you, you have to worry about the growth of this, of, of this space. Um, I, I think, uh, one of the things that I, uh, maybe I would say, uh, from a position of some ignorance, I would ask the question of the experts, if somebody really starts to uh, have a go at, uh, at blockchain, uh, particularly with the development of uh, uh, quantum computing in the near future, could we not have a really uh, a vulnerable part of the financial system in this area? That's a question I have in the back of my mind. I don't know the, the answer to it, uh, but if contrary to the conventional wisdom, these blockchains were not as secure as they appeared to be, we could, we could end up with an extremely vulnerable part of the system. Very good, thank you very much. So Cora, we have a couple of questions here. Uh, I think they relate to credit unions. So. Let me see if we can um, um, figure out a way to ask them. They're a little bit worded in a long way, but uh, the first question is credit unions are becoming increasingly important um, role players in the financial inclusion in most of developing countries. However, the rate of usage of dig digital financing is limited. How can they be affected by cyber risks and become resilient? It's actually a pretty good question when you think about it in terms of you wanna increase access, you talk about credit unions and then how do you deal with that as a regulator when it comes to cyber? Okay, yeah, well, in a way they are um, less exposed to, to cyber risks, uh, at least in, in, in Peru, than, than other uh, institutions of the, of the financial system. Uh, why? Because they, are, they, they tend to be less Connected and less digital in their in their operations, they are. Uh, but that, of course, that is going to change. No, uh, it's going to be change quickly. And I think that uh, they are a big tool for financial inclusion, and they are going to be a big tool in the future. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, uh, pretty much in the same way as you deal with that in in, in 
in the financial system. The problem is that uh, it's, a, it's a problem of scale. You, you may have to do cyber risk, dealing with cyber risk is really expensive. And it is more expensive than dealing with other risks. And the investment that you need to deal with that uh, may not be something that a cooperative, for instance, may have uh, at hand. So perhaps um, they can use cooperation as a way of dealing with this risk. Uh, getting together all cooperatives through a cooperative federation, for instance, to try to uh, collectively get enough resources to fight this risk as a group of, of, of as, a, as a subsector of the industry. No? Uh, I think that would be uh, a way of doing it. Uh, you need to use uh, uh, positive externalities to fight negative externalities. Interesting, very interesting. I'm gonna come back to question two of uh, Marwa a little bit later to give a time for other questions. But while we're with you, Socorro, there's a questioner, Jonathan says, can Socorro share cyber risk platform resource links with us? I think you mentioned that. So I'm wondering if you, someone in your office can either put it on the chat or you can send it to us, yeah. we can distribute it to the group. That would be great. Yeah, uh, yeah. sorry, okay. someone, talk, yeah, okay, sure, sorry. Now, um, the next question really is interesting. It's very brief to the point. Uh, priority of cyber versus climate risk. It kind of reminds me of the questions we ask our kids. Do you rather sleep on a bed of nails or on a bed of uh, spiders, right? We had Governor Mark Carney come and talk to us about a year ago, and he talked about how climate risk, climate change is like a slow moving pandemic. You cannot self isolate and you cannot vaccinate. Rob Stewart said the same thing. And, um, Martin, maybe we could go up to you. I mean, uh, supervisors seem to be doing so much more. Don't you miss those subprime mortgages and Lehman Brothers issues? Now you have to deal with so many things. So as you look at the risks ahead, uh, how do you prioritize between climate um, uh, risk to the financial system, which has now been incorporated in FSAPs and uh, cyber? Or can you chew gum and walk at the same time? I think in this case, else. <laughs> I think in this case we can. I, mean, I, I shouldn't be so ambitious as to claim we can, but actually I don't see any any significant trade-off between the two. There are some risks which definitely you do have to trade off. And for example, we talked a minute ago about crypto. You definitely there is a trade-off between facilitating crypto and innovation and uh, uh, and controlling the risk for for the investor. Uh, but in this area, I don't see that much of a trade-off between sustainable finance and, uh, and dealing with cyber. Uh, in fact, uh, the integrity of the systems uh, is is critical to the development of sustainable finance uh, solutions. So I would see them as very complementary. They are both challenges of our times. Yep, we are we are clearly trying to create uh, internet protocol enabled communication systems that really drive forward the financial sector. And in order, we're trying to use that in order to create a new sustainable finance uh, uh, sector that works in which you can trade carbon credits securely in which you can get information analyzed and spread around the world and you can gather information on, on, on uh, uh, level three em emissions and so on. So there's a lot of complement complementarity between the technology that cyber attacks and a lot of the sustainable finance solutions that we are working towards. And there's a need for a very high level of trust in the information that is going to be at the heart of the sustainable finance system. And for that, 
the systems for developing that information and for communicating that information need very high levels of uh, uh, integrity. So I, I don't see any trade-off. These are two that we are going to have to push forward hand in glove uh, uh, together in order to get where we're trying to get to over, over the next five years. You win. Correct answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. It's always good to be on top of what's going on. So, Anna, this question is going to go to you. It's an interesting one. Uh, and, you know, I think can cut across supervisory uh, issues or really any sector. Will cyber police be a good solution? Since cyber attack is an organized crime, a private company might not have sufficient resources to deal with. Moreover, cyber crime does not affect only the financial sector, but also other aspects. Example, national defense, weather services, education, sorry, elections, elections, yeah. Uh, they are also often cross-border crime. So between cyber police in different countries um, um, share information with each other. So what, what is the thinking on that since you've been dealing with some of the counterintelligence issues and going back to your, we talked about academia that you've had time to think about these things. What's your general sense? Should there be a central um, Interpol for cyber? You know, I have to say the when I hear cyber police, it kind of hits me, you know, it kind of makes me <laughs> take a step back. Um, and then maybe because it, it, it's much broader than a law enforcement issue in some ways, um, because it cuts across so many different sectors. Um, <clears throat> I think, um, I have to think a little bit more about how would you actually implement that, right? And 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 then it still kind of creates an us and them, as opposed to more of a collective. How are we going to work together across yeah. public, private, you know, academia to really find um, workable solutions, and 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 across yeah. governments as well to find workable solutions. Um, and I and I think it kind of comes back to some other points I I, I made earlier about. It's the information sharing and it's awareness of how far reaching some of these these are yeah. um, and, you know, pushing back against like these are really norm breaking activities you know, that undermined, you know, we were talking about financial systems here, but but really um, it undermines the global norms of science right when you're you're attacking universities it undermines our, uh, you know, stability issues if it's it gets a critical infrastructure. Um, and so I, I think it, it will incorporate all, all of those things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, as you speaking, I'm, it makes me think that you're, you're, I mean, you got a point there in the sense that you don't want to duplicate, triplicate another agency's work. I guess a high profile example is in the United States, you have the Southern District of New York that essentially deals with a lot of, uh, district attorneys deals with a lot of financial crime, right? And then, uh, so, Anyway, it's, it's yeah, the, the answer is not as apparent as it appears. Um, right, because I think um, like that reaction, you can say something like, yes, let's do that. But but then thinking about, okay, how do we, you know, we're not yeah. resource re resource infinity also. So how do you, you know, yeah. leverage the strengths of the organizations we already have? Yeah, and you want to avoid a cure, uh, sorry, a, a, a solution that is worse than the cure, right? So, um, um, Danny, let's go to you on this one. Question from Humphrey. What sort of risks should supervisors be concerned about for financial institutions which are implementing innovative fintech products like digital cash? You know, that's a, it's a good question. I think it's just, uh, to answer it more broadly, you know, I think as our services, financial services are digitized, 
and interconnected in a um, digital way, um, you know, those risks are the same, right? I think we need to be looking at um, resiliency. How are we, you know, the, the whole spectrum of, of the, you know, I use the NIST framework, but any, any cybersecurity framework that you want to use really to cut across, how are you um, looking at risk management for those services? So uh, as things get digitized, as we move much, much, much more into these digital innovations, I think we just need to have strong risk management approaches to um, making sure that we're building a uh, resilient architecture for those services. Thank you. Uh, Sokoro, for you, I'm going to try to do a hybrid of Anthony's question and Marwa's second question. I'll do the best I can. They're, they're not exactly the same, but they're close enough. So as emerging financial institutions like credit unions, but you, know, you can think of any other, are migrating from manual systems to digital financing, smaller jurisdictions, what major attention um, should they put to avoid cyber risk and become resilient? Uh, dealing and also dealing with cyber crime. What's your general take on that? And Anthony, I'm sorry if I didn't do justice to your question, but I tried to find the similarities. Go ahead. Well, as Danny said earlier, um, uh, the innovation has to come together with with risk management. I mean, if you if you go ahead with innovation without proper risk management, basically, you it's as a recipe for failure. So. Uh, Credit unions have to be aware that if or trade unions or smaller emerging market institutions, they have to be aware that as they move forward with innovation, which is something that is desirable, they have to uh, spend their resources also to do a proper risk management of this of, of the vulnerabilities that may be created by, by this uh, by this innovation, by this new product, by these applications. Uh, there's there's no we, they cannot afford not to do it uh, at the same time, because it would be more costly to uh, basically uh, have a, a threat, uh, a damaging threat that will destroy the whole company or the whole industry. So even though it is very costly to face this risk, to manage this risk properly, uh, we cannot afford not to do it. So there is room for collaboration, for pooling resources, and, and maybe even in some countries, or since this is a global problem, to, for using even government resources to try to address some of these issues, because since public, uh, since financial inclusion is a, is a public good, maybe there is some room to uh, address some of these issues with public uh, resources too. But that has Excellent. to be thought and this design and, yeah. and all these incentives have to be there uh, to, to control moral hazards and all sorts of problems yeah. that could come with it. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Martin, I'm going to pose the question from Cindy Russell to you. You did bring up the question of trying to look at it from a risk-based approach. And also, in addition to securities, you have been a, a supervisor regulated in other sectors as well. So I think it's a good question. Uh, for you. Uh, Cindy asks, I think uh, presently cyber risk is seen as a subset of operational risk. 
what are your thoughts on cyber risk being treated as a separate distinct risk outside of being housed under operational risk? Um, generally speaking, and this is a bit of an off the cuff answer, I, I, I would tend to be a bit skeptical about that. And, and I'll tell you why, because it has an awful lot to do with how organizations behave. And uh, if you silo cyber risk as a specialist activity, it, it ends up with a smaller voice within the organization until the day after the successful cyber attack, and then suddenly everybody's listening. But before that, nobody's listening. If you take it as part of a broader operational resilience program within an organization, then I think that's a better envelope within which to get it to the senior decision makers within the organization and to attach yourself to budgets. But that's me trying to predict how organizations behave. But my instinct as a supervisor would be to be nervous about that uh, because, I, I, you know, and as we've increasingly looked at it, we've, we see that the touch points, uh, for, I'll give one key touch point, for example, is this touch point between cyber risk and, uh, and, uh, uh, and outsourcing and the wider group of risks relating to outsourcing. We've got a lot of financial firms which have a huge number of complex outsourcing uh, uh, contracts and very often second and third party outsourcing contracts and not necessarily with clear visibility as to all the terms of those, of those arrangements. Now those arrangements are inherently, uh, 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 have, they've got cyber risk in them uh, because you connect all those suppliers up to your, up to your systems or you usually do. And what do you do and how do you manage that in a holistic way if you have put cyber risk over in a corner? I think it will turn out badly. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, I'm gonna, Danny, give you the last question, make it hybrid, uh, the anonymous and uh, Humphrey's first question. So essentially, uh, should regulators, supervisors scope be expanded to include non-financial institutions providing financial services? For example, many telecoms, fintech firms provide digital financial services. And carrying on with Humphrey, what sort of risks should supervisors be concerned about for financial institutions which are implementing innovative fintech products? So the way I'm looking at this is you're talking about the entity that might be regulated as a financial institution and the activity of, let's say, a telco that is a financial, but the entity itself regulated that activity is not. What's your general sense in that in terms of uh, dealing with that in the world of cyber? Um, so I'm gonna cheat a little bit and first answer a little bit. Uh, I'm gonna tack on to Martin's um, question and, okay. and answer a bit, because I agree completely with Martin that I do think cyber belongs under the operational risk umbrella, um, but maybe to, the, um, to um, highlight something that I think was, behind um, the, the question is like how to make sure that cyber risk isn't buried in, um, into an operational risk. Like let's just solve the broader operational risk problem and we don't have to worry about cyber so much. I think there's middle ground. I think there's a way of highlighting and saying that there's a large gap in cyber risk management that needs to be focused on while keeping it under the operational risk umbrella. As far as the uh, FinTech and digital, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think you know, solid risk management as we're introducing new digital products like this is um, critical as far as um, whether they should be regulated um, or include, you know, regulators and supervisors should expand their scope to include them. You know, that's probably beyond my, um, my area of expertise on how to design that properly, but I am a supervisor. So I would say that, um, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I do believe that um, supervision and regulation is important. 
and um, they should be supervised in some way and regulated in some way. Where or how that happens, you know, again, it's probably outside of my expertise. Okay, thank you. So I think we're coming to the close. I mean, one of the things you always want to do in Toronto centers end the sessions on time so that you guys come back, uh, both the speakers and the and the uh, audience and. Uh, you certainly uh, exceeded our expectation in terms of making the session very lively as the questions of the test. And for those of you who asked questions and we didn't answer your questions, uh, please don't feel bad. We are saving your questions. We will deal with them one way or another, either through our courses. This will be your contributions to our work. And uh, in some cases, we may actually try to get back to the audience on this or cover them in other forums. Uh, it's a very difficult time. As supervisors have a lot on their plates and they never get a positive press release for whatever they do, but they always get a finger of blame pointed at them. And every time there's a crisis, you know, ministers of finance seem to be okay, but they either in some countries go to jail or whatever. So, and they have to continuously look at how to deal with emerging risks as they are appearing. And thank you very much for very uh, uh, coherently and clearly uh, explaining your points in a simple ways that uh, all of us can understand plain speaking. And uh, don't be surprised if we come back to you, our speakers and involve you in some other things. So thank you again. You have our gratitude. Mm -hmm.